Welcome to the Storytelling with Data podcast, where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Alex. Recently, I dealt with a couple of health issues. Now, I should mention that I'm totally fine now, which I'm super grateful for and quite relieved about. But as part of this process, I had to choose a new team of doctors. Now, if you've gone through this process yourself, you know the new patient process of filling out tons of forms before you ever show up to an appointment or undergo a procedure. Wasn't too long ago that I was doing just that before one of my consultations. I spent almost 20 minutes filling out a questionnaire in my online patient portal. Then I showed up to that appointment, and I started to realize that most of the time was spent rehashing the exact same questions that I had just answered. The nurse would ask me a question, I'd answer, and then she'd type my response into that online patient portal something I thought that I had already done. Now, my frustration isn't with the nurse, but rather with this process. Why should I spend my time entering information into a portal if I can just wait until we meet? Isn't that a more efficient use of time? Now, I realize that in the medical space, this is probably required. But in many business scenarios, it's not. And yet, this same thing happens frequently whenever we send a slide deck before a meeting. So that's what I thought we'd chat about today. This could be a hot take, but I am not a fan of pre-reads, and I will respectfully decline most requests to share content before a meeting. Before I elaborate on why, I thought I'd start by exploring what exactly a pre-read is. So pre-reads are any reading material that's sent to future attendees of a meeting or presentation. Reviewing content in advance allows those people an opportunity to think of better questions and actively participate in discussion ultimately leading to a more effective meeting. In theory, pre-reads sound super useful. In practice, they usually just create more challenges. And that's because for pre-reads to succeed, two things need to happen. The first has to do with the meeting organizer. That organizer needs to create two types of content. Content that's presented, so this is usually slides, and summarized content that is usually shared ahead of time. Second thing that needs to happen for success has to do with the attendees. And these future attendees need to bake in enough time and have enough willingness that they will read through those materials before they attend the meeting. Now, in a typical business setting, it's rare for either one of these things to happen, let alone both. So let's discuss what often happens instead. And I'll start out by playing out what happens for the organizer. So when the person leading the meeting doesn't have enough time to create a separate pre-read and presentation materials, they usually take a shortcut, which means they will use a single file for both of these meets. And this could take a couple of forms. Most common form is that the organizer spends all of their time and effort on the meeting creating that presentation deck. So when they need to send a pre-read, they just share the slide deck as is. Here's the problem with that. Slides are visual aids that are meant to support a presenter, at least when they're done well. What this means is they aren't intended to make sense if you don't have somebody to narrate through them. And if pre-read materials aren't clear, it's never going to have the desired impact of leading to better questions and conversations at the meeting, which means the whole goal of the pre-read is just lost. I also want to point out that most slide decks are pretty lengthy. 
And if you've ever opened up a multi-page document while you're super busy at work, you know that the first thing you want to do is close out of that, relegating reading that really lengthy document for another time. Second thing that might happen is the organizer could realize that sharing a sparse slide deck isn't a great experience for a pre-read. So maybe they modify it slightly. They add some additional context onto the slide just to make it make more sense for somebody who's processing independently. Here's the challenge. While this does make for a more effective pre-read, it also simultaneously makes for a less effective presentation and thus a less effective meeting. And that's because overly wordy slides just compete for attention whenever you're presenting to an audience because your audience is going to be busy reading the slide behind you while also trying to listen to you. And that never really works out well. So maybe the organizer is aware of this challenge and decides to just lean fully into the pre-read. They create one detailed document that's intended to be read. So then they might send that as the pre-read and then during the presentation, just present the document itself to remind them of the key points they want to discuss. Now, if you do that, that's not a great experience for the audience because nobody wants to be read to aloud in a meeting, especially if it's something that they've already scanned through. Or maybe what they decide to do is send that detailed document, but then just summarize things at the top of the meeting. If that's the case, that could be successful. But doing so is hard to pull off because it requires a presenter to know their stuff well enough to be able to summarize and be charismatic enough to carry the meeting without any sort of visual prompt. Critical point that I'm trying to make as I explore all of these different outcomes is just that people consume information differently when they're listening to content in a meeting versus when they're reading that content at their desks. So if you take the shortcut of trying to use a single file, it's not going to work. You need to design materials that are meant to support each one of those means And that just takes time to do, time that most people don't have. I also want to point out that people don't like wasting time. They don't want to rehash the same materials both at their desk and in a meeting, sort of like what I experienced at the doctor's office. So if your audience comes to expect that as the norm from you, they're probably just going to start deciding to wait for the meeting and intentionally skip that pre-read. And that's the biggest challenge with pre-reads. Even when you do everything right, when you design thoughtfully, their success depends on others. And most people are busy. They don't want to do homework before a meeting. In fact, the majority of people won't give any thought to what's going to be discussed in a meeting until minutes before that start time. So this creates a mixed audience challenge where a large portion of your attendees arrive unprepared because they never looked at the pre-read while the remaining portion is ready to discuss the topic at hand. So then you have to decide, do you start at the beginning or do you jump right into the discussion? And whether you cater the discussion to either one of those groups that either did the reading or the one that didn't, the other group is going to lose attention and patience. So I've experienced these outcomes way too many times, which is why I've ultimately come to the conclusion that pre-reads aren't for me. They're just way too risky. I'd rather spend my time creating more concise presentation materials, practicing how I'll talk through the slides, and facilitate discussion. Now, just because I don't approve of pre-reads doesn't mean others have stopped asking me for them. So here are a couple of ways that I often handle requests that might be useful to you if you're maybe thinking that pre-reads aren't for you or if you're trying to avoid some of the outcomes I've shared. 
So whenever somebody asks for content in advance, I usually do my best to try to understand why do they want to pre-read. And what I found is that more often than not, the ask to share slides in advance isn't actually a request for a pre-read. Instead, somebody just wants to sign off on content before a meeting or understand the agenda, or maybe they just want confirmation that they're going to have something to reference after the meeting. In the first two of those scenarios, I'll usually comply. If somebody needs to sign off on content before a meeting, this actually isn't a pre-read, but rather a request to give feedback. And I'm always happy to receive some feedback before an important meeting. So I might share my slides with that person. Again, it's not pre-read. Or maybe I set up a time for us to meet and I can practice delivering the content and get some feedback on my delivery as well. If somebody wants to understand the agenda and how we'll spend time, that's usually a cue to me that I haven't provided enough information when I've set up the meeting. So I'll quickly create a description for the meeting, add an agenda to the meeting invite, and hopefully that'll put people at ease. Now, for the people that want confirmation that they'll have something to reference, again, I'm still going to try to avoid sending a pre-read. And so usually what I'll do is just I'll explain to that person that my slides are pretty sparse. They're designed to be presented. And so if I share them with them in advance, it's probably not going to make sense. And so I'll offer to send the slides after the meeting, after I've been able to connect the dots and provide more context. In most cases, people are willing to wait. And I found that post-reads are often way more successful than pre-reads because the person on the receiving end, the attendee, has enough context that even if those slides are sparse and I'm using a single file, they still have enough context to make sense of everything. Now, sometimes all of these different approaches just don't work and my attendees still want a pre-read and I can't convince them otherwise. So in those cases, I'm going to send something to my audience to make them happy, but I'm not sending the full slide deck. Instead, I'm just sending an executive summary slide. Now, it's worth pointing out that I create an executive summary slide for every single presentation that I create. It's just part of my process, helps me get clear and concise on what the points are that I want to make. So if you don't do this naturally, then it is going to create more work for you, but it's not an excessive amount because an executive summary is just a lighter view of your presentation. You're repurposing content, so it's actually pretty easy to copy and paste different graphs, images, and recycle some of the same language. So if you're not comfortable creating executive summary slides or you'd like more information on how to do this, I'm going to link an article in the show notes where I share a pretty detailed guide of how I approach executive summaries. I share some templates and common layouts that the team uses, as well as walk you through a makeover of an executive summary slide. To complement the conversation that I had on pre-reads, I thought I'd also share a couple of other interesting questions that came up during some recent sessions. So the first question comes from workshop attendee Harry. We have varying competencies across the team when it comes to presenting and storytelling. To help with consistency, we're trying to turn some of the stronger presentations into templates so that anyone, regardless of their skill set, can give a better presentation. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think it's possible? Before I share my thoughts on this approach, I think it's helpful first to discuss what do we mean when we say slide templates? In my experience, Slide templates can look a little different depending on the team or the organization. For me, a slide template is really just a starting point for a presentation. It's meant to be helpful. Without any sort of template, 
I'd basically just have a blank slide, a blank canvas where I have to make every single design decision. The challenge sometimes is, is that the head start that these templates often give vary a bit. So my ideal slide template preloads colors so I don't have to decide which hues to use. I add some general layouts so I have a sense of maybe where to place things on the slide. Also includes fonts, copyright information, any critical disclaimers that have to be present. I've also seen some templates that will include some images, and that's incredibly helpful if you work for an organization where your illustrations and images have to be legally approved before you can share them to broader audiences. So anything that you think would make creation faster is certainly something that would be fair game for a slide template. And I'm a huge fan of these. I think almost every team, every organization should have something like this. The challenge arises, though, when we try to be too helpful with a slide template and we start to border on being overly prescriptive and even restrictive when it comes to what a good presentation might look like. I can remember a time where I was working for that media team that I mentioned earlier, and we had an incredibly prescriptive template to use. In some ways, it was helpful. In other ways, it started to prove problematic over time because this template included graphs that were meant to be used. So anytime you presented on a certain data set, you already knew the graph that you were required to use, the colors that had to be there. The slide titles were determined for you. And because of that and how it was used, those slide titles were pretty broad very descriptive in nature, which sometimes meant that the audience didn't really know what was being discussed on each slide. Also, the order in which the slides were shared was already locked in, and so you weren't necessarily allowed to make changes there. And just having this very prescriptive title with all of these restrictions in place meant that anytime I had to use this template, I didn't even think of it as a template thought of it as a form more so where I was just updating numbers and I didn't feel confident to make changes that would make for a better presentation. So when I first read or heard that question more accurately, my fear was that by taking a good existing presentation and trying to turn it into a template, you might accidentally lean towards being a little too prescriptive and that can have some negative outcomes that maybe you don't intend for. So I think a better option in those scenarios where you're trying to capitalize on a great presentation and make it accessible for others is to instead certainly make sure you have that lighter template in place with the colors, the fonts, different layouts, and so forth, but also create what I would consider to be like an example bank. So this could be as simple as a shared folder on a drive across an organization where you just start storing good presentations. And then that way, the next time somebody has to create a presentation from scratch, they already have the template, so they have the branding and the design decisions made for them, but they can also go ahead and reference any great presentations that were on a similar topic, maybe emulate some things, and try to capture the spirit of what made that presentation great, but they also have the flexibilities and the creative license for their given story. Moving on to the next question, which also comes from a recent workshop attendee, Parth. Do we use PowerPoint notes, aka speaker notes? And if so, 
How do you avoid appearing like you're reading off of them? This is a great question and one that I think a lot of people wonder. The short answer is yes. I absolutely use speaker notes. I can confirm that every single person across the Storytelling with Data team also uses speaker notes. When it comes to how do you avoid appearing to read off them, I guess the answer is also simple. We don't read off of them ever, so it's not like I have any acting tips to share here. I think the challenge when you start reading speaker notes is probably how you're using speaker notes. My guess is if there's something to read, then you've probably scripted out everything you want to say in a presentation. You almost have a talk track. And so if having that visible tempts you to want to read, then I would say the easiest thing that you can do is delete that talk track or transform it into more of a bulleted list where you won't be reading word for word. Embedded in that suggestion is also the suggestion that you need to allocate more time for practicing. And if you've practiced, if you familiarize yourself with your content, you're not going to be as tempted to read. You're going to be able to be more present in the moment. And that's just great for everyone involved. You, you're going to feel more confident as a presenter, but also your audience is certainly going to appreciate the fact that you're able to stand out from behind your screen and be a little bit more present in the moment. Now, when it comes to how I use speaker notes, typically I just have more of a bulleted list where I will list out any of the key points that I want to make on a given slide. So it's not full written prose, but rather key phrases just to remind myself of the high-level topics. I'll also sometimes include links to underlying data sources or anything that's related to the topic that I want to be able to quickly navigate to if needed. Final thing I often include in speaker notes are transitional phrases. So this is just the phrase or the statement that I want to use to navigate from one slide to the next slide. And I've often found that just by listing these things out, again, because they're not fully scripted, I certainly don't feel like I have to read through them, but I have them there to reference anytime I'm practicing or looking at a past presentation. It also works well in the scenario where I need to then send my slides because there's enough there to help somebody connect the dots. Now, if you have listened to this episode, you know I don't share my slides very frequently. So these are the instances where I'm sharing slides to get feedback or as a post-read. So somebody has already seen me present through the content, but just having a bulleted list, a reminder of the key points is certainly helpful when they're scanning through it independently. One tip I can offer, which is actually a tip that Cole gave me when I first joined the team, is that I was sometimes looking at speaker notes as a way to remind myself of things I thought I was going to forget. And so instead of including any information that you might forget in your speaker notes, which are hidden during the presentation, instead build that into your content. So you can do this in the form of creating an entire slide based on whatever it is you're going to forget. Maybe it's a phrase or a number you forget, so you could put it in the slide title or on an annotation in the graph. And the benefit there is that usually when you're presenting, you're regularly looking at the slides that are visible. So once you see it, it'll certainly remind you. But also, if for some reason you still forget to say it out loud, at least your audience had a chance to see whatever that important phrase was or that important number. So I think just to sort of wrap up this answer, when it comes to how do you avoid reading, don't script out your stuff. Give yourself enough time to practice. And that confidence is certainly going to help you be more in the moment 
and be looking at your audience rather than your screen. The final question for today is one that I've received quite a few times over the years. The reason that I include it is because my answer has recently involved. So the question is, what are my thoughts on combination charts? If you had asked me this question a few years ago, my face when I would have heard that question probably would have started to uh, squish up and I would have said something like, oh, I'm not really a fan. And that's because when I heard the words combination charts, my mind automatically envisioned this really cluttered and busy graph where there's bars at the bottom, there's lines at the top, maybe they're overlapping those bars that are at the bottom. There's probably two vertical axes. There's a colorful legend that's supposed to help you figure out how to read what's in front of you. It's just usually way too complex, too confusing, too cluttered. And even today, I'm still not a fan. That's actually not what has evolved in my answer. What has evolved is what I imagine when I hear the word combination charts. For me, I always thought of a very specific type of combination charts, but that's not really fair. In fact, combination charts more accurately are any two types of graphs that have different encodings that are merged into a single view. And so when you start to view combination charts in that light, you realize there's nothing that requires you to have that confusing secondary y-axis. And you also start to realize that the combination possibilities are endless. Right, some of my favorite combinations are line charts and Gantt charts. And I'll often use this one anytime I have to share the progress of an ongoing initiative or project. And it works really well because I can share whatever metric we're tracking as progress for the project in the line chart above. But then I can also use the horizontal x-axis, which is usually some measure of time, to show when a given initiative started. And I'll do that in the form of the Gantt chart. I also tend to really like bars and data tables, especially when the bars are displaying some sort of calculated metric. So this could work well for diverging bars when you're trying to show the difference between two metrics. So you can plot that in the diverging bar chart, but then in the data table, you can include what the original metrics were just as a reference point for your audience. Or it could work well with a 100% stacked bar chart where you're showing part to whole relationships and proportions. So then in a nearby data table that maybe shares the same horizontal or vertical axis, you can also give your audience a sense of what were the absolute values just to give your audience a sense of the magnitude. So there are a number of different combinations that can be incredibly useful, provide a more robust understanding for someone else. And if as I described some of those combination charts, you couldn't quite envision it, I will be sure to link some examples in the show notes. And I think this is a good seg to just mention that given the inspiration that I've had for how I view combination charts, actually decided to make this month's Storytelling with Data challenge all about combination charts. So the specific challenge is to create a clever combination, one that goes beyond the traditional bar line secondary y-axis combination that I had described earlier, which maybe isn't as successful. So if you are listening to this episode in November and you want to take the challenge, I will also put a link to that in the show notes. Now, today's episode was actually inspired by a recent conversation that I had after a Storytelling with Data workshop. And one of the things that I love so much about workshops is not just being able to help people communicate more effectively with their data, 
but the discussions that often happen in the margins of these workshops. During exercises, breaks, or after the session, I'm often strategizing with people about certain challenges that they face. And so if you've ever thought to yourself, you want to attend a workshop, you're actually in luck because we have just released our 2024 public workshop schedule. And next year, we're going to be hosting a whole number of things. We'll have our foundational and our best-selling storytelling with data workshop, but we're also going to be testing out a couple of new things. So we're reviving our eight-week online course. We're also going to have some in-person master classes with the full team in London and Seattle, as well as a brand new session called Storytelling with Slides. So if you've thought about attending one of these sessions or you want to have one of these marginal conversations that I just discussed, check out storytellingwithdata.com slash public workshops. We have a special offer for you, a 10% discount. So when you register, you can use the code PODCAST10. All of these details, again, will be in the show notes.